Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today I am with Charlie, who's going to introduce our special guest for today. Thank you so much, Beth. It's really lovely to do an episode with you. It's been... Have we ever done one? I I was going to say, I don't actually think we've ever done one. So it's nice to be in the same Zoom room together. Exactly. This is a new new dream team happening right here, Beth. And um, (laughs) lovely listeners are going to get to hear something special. Uh, We're joined today by Mark Turnbull. He's an author and podcaster with a self-described, and I love this, passionate interest in the Civil War. So yeah, someone I want to hang out with. He's the host of Cavalier Cast, which was the first and is currently the longest running podcast dedicated solely to the Civil Wars. His most recent book, Charles I's Private Life, was published by Pen and Sword in September, and he's here to tell us all about the man he found behind the monarch. Hi, Mark. Hi, yeah. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Beth. Oh, it's just such a such a thrill to get you on here. Um, oh, no, to... thank you. Um... <laughs> <laughs> and Thanks to uh, talk all all things Charles I. How did you how did you get obsessed with the Civil War? I've got to ask you that before we start. Oh, I mean, this is going back some time now. I'll not mention the exact amount of years, but um, a childhood visit to Helmsley Castle in North Yorkshire and uh, the the gift shop, the, the usual horn for kids. Um, and there was, I mean, I loved history anyway, but there was this pack of cards and um, I later bought the same pack of cards for my daughter. Um, and it just had all of the monarchs of England um, on one side, pictures and images, and on the back, a little bit of a description about you know their reign and them. And um, I was I was flicking through it, and really, you know, I was I was interested in it. I wanted to draw some of them, and I just came across this Charles the First card, and and you know looked at this um, amazing portrait, Charles the First at the Hunt, Van Dyke, uh, such a regal pose. And then read a little bit more and, and just found out, you know, it, I think it said something along the lines of executed by his people, or, you know, something like that. And I, they're just the two sides of this card were just completely at odds. And from that moment, I just I, I want to know more about this. I want to know more about him, about these wars, you know, what actually happened. And, you know, in the days pre-internet, it just sort of spiraled with with stumbling across films like Cromwell you know, on mm-hmm. repeat one morning, um, <laughs> libraries, you know, you name it, and then reenactment. So, you know, it just yeah. goes on from there. <laughs> it's a it's a rabbit hole we fall down and um, obviously not great content for our listeners. But Mark, was the card similar to this card? Yes, yes, yeah. that's it. Yes. Holding up the card of Charles II. Those packs of cards, guys, if you want to get your kids into history, um, get them one of those and they will they will love you forever. Um, so. The, the private life of Charles II is something I think all children and, and all adults are familiar with. Um, but we speak relatively little about the private life of his father, Charles I. So I think the general assumption is, therefore, that Charles I had no private life worthy of discussing. Um, do you think he's being written off too easily? It's like, isn't it? It's like when we think of our parents being sort of teenagers and we think, oh, no, they, they didn't they didn't like do these things. You know, it's the same with Charles, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I absolutely do think he's been, you know, written off in that way, you know, very much. Um, 
And there's a few factors at play, I think. So, I mean, first of all, I'll say that he was a victim of his own success. Mm. Um, so, so going back to 1623, when he was 23, so he made a trip to Madrid. Um, he's trying to reverse the decline in fortunes of the Stuarts, reclaim his brother-in-law's ancestral lands in the Palatine. Um, and he wants to seize the nettle, you know, so he's wanting to try and marriage, uh, marry the Spanish Infanta. He thinks that um, uh, through the, the terms of that, that he can he can bring that um, Palatinate lands back to his brother, brother-in-law and sister. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't a flight of fancy. It wasn't foolish. You know, there was 11 years of absolutely intense pressure over who he should marry, um, you know, people planning his life for him. Um, but he was completely wrong in, in, in the end, you know, he, he tried and it just didn't work. You know, he's diving over walls to try and catch her alone. Um, you know, he's leaning out of windows during public events to sort of catch a glimpse. They're driving past each other in carriages and he, he's watching as she drives past. And, you know, I think, I think he convinces himself that he's smitten. Um, you know, he, he says that he's in love. Um, perhaps he's in love with the idea because he has this romantic notion that he's some sort of knight errant, you know, going off. Um, but it wasn't he's to with be, Buckingham, but... isn't he? He's with, he's with the Duke of Buckingham on this jaunt. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose, yeah, who, who better to go on a, you know, a jaunt of that sort than Buckingham? <laughs> <laughs> So I think it did weld the two of them together. But the biggest life changing thing that, that this brought, I think, is um, Charles's desire to emulate the Spanish monarchy. Um, so it's austere, proud, wealthy. They are very much like a godlike figure above the grime of politics. Mm. Uh, and Charles went on to hold his court in the same manner. So I think it was that formal and that access was so restricted um, on the one hand, it completely suited his shy, unconfident manner. Um, you know, he, he once complained to the Earl of Strafford about being importuned by this uh, peer who approached him uh, off the cuff, you know, with a, a petition. Uh, you know, he finds it difficult sometimes to say no. Um, but but really, in the words of the late Queen Elizabeth II, you know, the monarchy's got to be seen to be believed. Um so, so there's that side of it, that formal side, which I think we're left with. And that's how, you know, it's easy to see, oh, yeah, he hasn't got a private life, you know, because he is such a formal, enigmatic figure. But, you know, he's going out there meeting his public occasionally and he's lifting his hat, which is a really, um, you know, unusual gesture for a monarch to do to his people. You know, he, you know, I think he's doing a walk around, you know, he's walking around <laughs> meeting people, you know, public are gathering around. <laughs> um but what he did, and, and he had a lot of support from from segments of his um, ordinary people in in all kingdoms, but he did upset the movers and shakers. Um, you know, in the gentry and sort of aristocracy, you either love them or you hate them, <laughs> with 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 um, his style of monarchy. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think I think we judge him based on that, and then more modern times, I think you know it, it just it kind of gets more convoluted and more complex because you've got the martyr murderer two dimensional image. But yeah. I think in today's time with the decline of the church, that martyr image even is slipping. So we're almost left with what we feel more comfortable with in thinking about this man who, um, you know, in a lot of words, you know, what you read declared war on his people. Um, he's a tyrant. Um, and that's kind of what you're left with and that's what you judge him on and that's what you see. And we lose sight of the man and that that's what I really wanted to sort of get to the crooks of, you know, who was he? How, you know, what motivated him? How did his childhood affect, you know, his beliefs? And that goes perfectly into our next question, actually, doesn't it, Mark? Where um, <laughs> we wanted to talk about Charles's childhood. So that's excellent. Um, so Charles is one of those really interesting um, figures in the way that he wasn't born to be king. So he was a spur, as they called it. He had an elder brother, Henry. So can you tell us a little bit um, about Charles's childhood and the kind of relationships he had with his family? Yeah, absolutely. And so many similarities with Henry VIII as well, you know, about being the um, spare and sort of the interests and the character, you know, characteristics apart from the, there's some vast differences between the two, but then there's a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. But I, I think for me, so like 
three recent biographies that I'd, I'd looked at, you know, his the first half of his life, so 23 years, um, kind of accounts for about four, 14%. And I always felt that there was, you know, that when I was reading about him in, in you know, in the, in the time since that uh, that card at Helmsley Castle, I always felt like there was more that was missing about his younger years. You know, there was a lot of focus on the Civil War and it's, that's defining, uh, but not so much about, how he grew up you know um i think what you find is that many contemporaries say that he was his parents favorite child um you know you get that quite a lot from different observers at the time um and he was extremely close to his mother um and the key thing about his relationship with his father um is that james didn't see him as a threat um whereas with with his elder brother prince henry there was a lot of friction there um, because henry was just so glamorous um, that James didn't want to be upstage. But with Charles, you know, he, the, the descriptions of Charles as a child are always sweet, you know, uh, nice natured, um, kind, you know, um, willing to please, I would say. Um, so there are a lot of tender moments in what is a difficult and complicated childhood. Um, he's the youngest member of the family, you know, so perhaps the parents dote, dote on him. Um, they call all of his baby youngest... Charles, don't they? Yeah, yeah, which, uh, you know, so embarrassing. It must have been so embarrassing. <laughs> you know, even when he's 23, he's baby Charles. <laughs> but, you know, he, that, that name itself, it is quite a, a branding in terms of all of your younger siblings that came after you, and your three children all died. Um, and, and it must have reminded him in a way, or must have made him think, well, why am I... You know, why have I survived? And then obviously Henry goes on to die, his elder brother. So, you know, it it does make, you know, I think that does affect Charles. It must really have made him think, well, you know, God's favouring me. You know, perhaps he's got, you know, a, a mission for me or, you know. And uh, yeah, so um, he had a lot of early health problems, um, but, you know, he was never overlooked. So even from his early years, um, he was being earmarked as sort of a steward pawn, um, you know, despite the sickness um, that I, I was totally surprised that there was suggestions that he could become a king of Scotland, viceroy of Ireland. Um, there was even a proposal that he might sort of somehow take on the Spanish Netherlands. Um, so, yeah, definitely he he's not just a forgotten, sickly baby toddler child. Um but in his child, childhood and younger years, he definitely idolised his brother Henry. Um, but he, but again, he was no means outshone by Henry. Um, so, so James is once described or, or once sort of gave a bit of a, um, a shot to Henry by saying, you know, I'll leave the throne, throne to Charles because he is the fastest at learning. You know, Henry <laughs> wasn't a particularly uh, enthusiastic um, studier. Um, but Charles... The other thing that strikes me is that from a young age, he was so content in his own skin. You know, he knew what his likes and dislikes were. Yes, he wanted to emulate Henry, but he didn't want to be him. Um, and then everything changed when Henry died. So how old so is got... how old is Henry? How old is Charles when when Henry dies? So, um, so I think Henry's 18 and Charles is just coming up to 12. Um, it's just short of his... 12th birthday um and the last visit at the bedside charles takes this small bronze statue of a horse and you know pushes it into his brother's hands and henry's probably too far gone to to sort of recognize this but that horse stays in the collection um but you know it, from the moment of henry's shock death and it was a big shock you know that's when charles had to be his brother he had to be henry and I think that really made him lose a sense of his own identity. And perhaps from that moment, you know, he's characterised in one respect. He's, he's characterised in one respect as being uncertain of himself. And, you know, people see that as weak. But he was a very strong man, strong principled, strong character. Um, you know, was didn't look physically as athletic as Henry, but certainly was up to um, the same ability. But people were really harsh and critical at the time. And there have been ever since, you know, um, 
Nadine Ackerman's biography of Elizabeth of Bohemia, I noticed an article in um, the press that titled, you know, big sort of headline saying Weedy Brother. Um, and that really just carries through to this day. You know, Charles is just weedy. You know, he wasn't anything until Henry died. And then then he struggled and then failed. Um, but the one thing that stands out for me with that title is that aged 11, you know, we remember the funeral of Diana, Princess of Wales, 1997. You know, we think of Prince uh, Harry and Prince William walking behind the coffin in streets, sort of teeming with emotion. Uh, and Harry spoken of the effects. But in 1612, you've got Charles, just short of his 12th birthday, doing the same. You know, a city equally, um, you know, bereft, you know, desperate, you know, really upset. And he is leading the nation. Um, you know, his family, the king, the queen, his sister, all shut themselves away. They don't attend the funeral. You know, they're grief stricken. He was the only member of the royal family present and he had a shoulder that. Yeah. Um, and I just I can't imagine the a, effect. For a young lad, that's that's a lot. That's that is, I mean, we mm. we we still, like you say, we talk about it in contemporary terms. That's a lot for a young lad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think the the other thing, it would be great, wouldn't it, to, to see what he thought. Um, but then in in some of the research, what what I did find is a sonnet um that he penned to his mother. It's undated, but I would, you know, the, judging by the handwriting and everything, you're looking at, it's definitely after Henry's death, yeah. but it could be when Charles is between 13 to 18. Um, and what he's trying to do is explain to his mother how sonnets are, are constructed. Um, and he writes, um, the daily fashery or troubles had quenched the heavenly furious fire that once burned in him. Uh, so he goes on to say, in place whereof came sad and thorny cares, which restlessly no time or season spares. And I really do think that captures as close as we can get to, to how he felt his life had changed. You know, it must have just been, you know, an unremitting uh, lot of sad and thorny cares that, that were loaded on him. That's really beautiful. And um, I, I think, you know, that that sort of, suggests what he would be very much applauded for later which is his love of art and beauty and the 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 royal collection that he put together was just just incredible so it does give us a Mm. sense very very much of the man that he was but we're going to jump forward we need to jump forward a little bit and we're not we're not doing the life of charles the first here we're doing the man so yeah. he becomes king guys sorry spoiler um but then, <laughs> there's been some debate and this has been i mean one of the things that twitter is so wonderful for there's been some debate recently that you were involved in on twitter about the official start of the civil war all the wars of the three kingdoms or the wars of the five peoples however we're gonna we're gonna title it now the history books you open any any history book it's gonna say 22nd of august uh 1642 but what does this debate that we're having on twitter what does (laughs) it reveal to us about charles the first yeah well so you're right there and i think I think firstly, I'll just point out for listeners that so War of the Three Kingdoms is the entire you know, conflict across the three kingdoms. But what I'm going to refer to is the English Civil War. So it's not taken away from the War of the Three Kingdoms, but a civil war didn't begin formally in England until, well, this is the question, <laughs> until what the history books say is the 22nd of August, 1642, when Charles raised his standard. So, um, yeah, when it was when researching the biography, I mean, I came across this uh, details of a letter from the Venetian ambassador. And it said um, in a letter home, Parliament has just declared war on the king. And that, you know, I sat up immediately and thought, what? You know, this is how on earth did Parliament declare war on the king? Looked into it a bit further, and there was there was formal declarations from the House of Commons and the House of Lords, um, and you know I found that they the debated the wording of this formal significant statement um, in the Lords on the second of August, and and the ambassador is referring to to that document that was published, 
probably published maybe the third or the fourth. We're not sure when. Um, I'd gone with the fourth because that's when John Rushworth had, had mentioned it, um, who later went on to be Thomas Fairfax's secretary. Um, but the Venetian ambassador mentions, or oh, two days ago, or a few days ago, it was published, and that's why there's a question that could be the third. But, you know, that's immaterial. I think the point here is that is nearly three weeks before Charles raised his standard. And the thing for me is that that completely changes, I think, how the start of that formal side of the conflict should be looked on, and then by default, how we look on Charles. Um, so we've just had the anniversary and social media. I put a blog post out. You know, I see it. I saw it all over that day. Charles first declared war on his people. And, so and, you know, he's and, a bad, bad man because yeah. he did that. He he started it. Yeah, effectively. Is that, it that's it. That yeah. Says? He started. He unleashed it. Um, he's the one that formally unleashed it. And if it wasn't for him, you know, perhaps it wouldn't have happened. Perhaps some negotiations might have occurred, which is very, very simplistic. Um, and and as you said, you know, I've, I've looked at history books and, and that was such a shock to me because I've never read anything like that. Um, but and, and I just assumed when I read it that, you know, perhaps it was out there somewhere and I just hadn't read it. Um, but then checked it a little bit and then I did that blog post and, it, you know, there was a lot of comments and feedback and then really found that actually, you know, it, it is something that was very underexplored. Um, you know, it wasn't well known. Um, but really, Charles didn't declare war on his people by raising his standard. You know, that that's a fact. I think everybody would, you know, historians will agree on that. I think that he didn't declare war on his people. He's proclaiming the core of men at parliament as traitors um but parliament had formally announced that it was taken up arms against the king's evil counselors or basically the king um and raising an army against them and and you know they're saying we're going to live and die in the cause um they are justifying in sort of paragraphs after paragraph why they're doing this sort of a little bit like the Grand Remonstrance back in 1641, they're digging up everything, all the dirt and sort of saying, this is why, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, you know, digging up all of the dirt that they can to say, this is why we're raising the army. And, and the Earl of Essex's commission from the month previous to that in July from Parliament, he'd been ordered to invade, resist, repress, subdue, pursue, slay and kill. So Parliament's commander has that it's order. Injury. Yeah. So so my thoughts are that both sides didn't want to open hostilities. They kind of goaded one another to try and get the other one to do it. Um, and, and there was a lot of skirmishing up and down the country going on before this. But the point is here, it's not formal. And I think they knew that whoever took it formal could potentially get cast as the aggressor. Um, only the king had the power to declare war. But at the end of the day, you know, what what those declarations were is is a declaration of war in all but name. And Charles couldn't not, re, you know, respond to that. You know, he's a legitimate king. Um, there's an army in his kingdom that's not his. You know, how can anyone look on that? But, yeah, looking at Charles, you know, what does that tell us? I, I think straight away, you know, he's not a bellicose tyrant just unleashing war on his people. Um, the context, I think shows that he was on the back foot yet again, um, because he often was. Um, you know, he was no great politician. Um, he had his moments, but, you know, on the whole, you know, he was very reactive when Parliament was extremely, um, extremely adept at managing the situation. Charles really wasn't. Um, so, yeah, the perception of that standard reason feeds into this tyrant, murderer, um, you know, counters that extreme, other extreme about martyr. Um, and I think, yeah, it, it just shows, doesn't it, that here's another reactive situation. Um, Charles perhaps is being painted in one way. Um, and and that's not necessarily the, the truth. You know, I think it takes two to tango, doesn't it? Um, and uh, clearly they were tangoing up and down the country before that. <laughs> 
Um, we're going to move now to um, kind of one of the crucial moments um, that you um, argue about in the book. Um, so we're going to talk about when Charles was refused entry into Hull. And you kind of talk about how this may have been a personal betrayal by a childhood friend, which sounds very intriguing. Could you tell us a little bit more about this and what that reveals on Charles's character and experiences at this point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so so it's a crucial moment. I mean, Charles himself called that uh, refusal. So the governor of Hull refusing to let Charles into Hull um, months before the standard reason. Charles called that an act of war. Um, and many at the time saw it as, as the start of war. You know, so we've, we've got Sir Richard Bulstrode who's saying war had been openly declared against the king. Um, and there's a plaque there now that, that commemorates the event and it says it was the first overt act of the civil war. Um, but in the it's the memoirs of Charles II son, James Duke of York. Um, and he he's really scathing about um, this so-called friend, William Murray. Um, so Murray is a Scotsman. Um, he'd been a friend of Charles's since childhood. Um, he was the nephew of Charles's at childhood secretary, Thomas Murray. Um, but he was an absolute born intriguer. Um, so backstairs politics, you've got William Murray there all the time. You know, yeah. he doesn't hold an official government position. He's a he's a groom of Charles's bedchamber, obviously very close to Charles. Um, but he's constantly in touch with Charles's enemies. You know, he's in touch with covenanters. Um, he's trying to put across to to the parliamentarians uh, when they were attempting to get Charles to give up the militia. Um, he was the one that was conveying, well, he won't do it, you know, as part of the coronation oath, and he feels like he's given away too much already. Um, so, yeah, the, the other thing with this is that behind the scenes, there was a real battle for dominance between English and Scottish courtiers. So on the whole, Charles and his father had Scotsmen in positions of influence or, or certainly like close to them in in the main. Mm. Um and I think Murray is definitely one of those um, Scots who's trying to sort of intercede. Um... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But, but yeah, it, it was quite interesting to see how james referred to him and james wrote his memoirs a lot later in life yeah. um but even then he's still quite scathing of murray and i think there was a namesake there was another william murray that was in james's household at the time right. and he refer he refers to his father's friend william murray as uh you know the, the dishonest one of the two you know of the um so yeah so apparently so you've got the Duke of York, James Duke of York, um, and the king's nephew, the Elector Palatine. They had been sent to Hull as a, a bit of an advanced uh, reconnaissance, maybe you know, bit of a visit. They got entry. They were they were they were entertained in Hull, and Charles decided um, on Saint George's Day to make his way there and try and gain control of the town and the stash of munitions in it. Mm. Um, because Parliament had appointed uh, um, John Hotham as the governor. Um, but so Charles sends advance notice that he's going to arrive. Um, Hotham gets this. And it's said by James, Duke of York, that the a, a notice came from William Murray of Charles's um, bedchamber, warning Hotham 
if the king gets into the town, he's going to proceed against you um, for your life. And of course, Hotham, you know, according to James, um, then stands firm on the walls and refuses entry to Charles. So it could explain why John Hotham was really categorical in refusing the king entry. I mean, he'd already let his son in and his nephew. Yeah. So why the difference? You know, is it because he knew what Charles's game was? Or, or is it because he'd been tipped off, actually? And the Hothams, you know, they, they were whichever way the wind blew. Um, so, you know, they, they would go whichever side they thought um, could give them the best outcome. So they were parliamentarian. They would later flirt with the royalists and they ended up both being executed. <laughs> tends to happen. So so this, this betrayal, so the, the fact that William Murray sends this note allegedly revealing what what the king's going to do when he's let in that's what charles is is upset about that he thinks he's he's overstepped or he's said too much was that his do we think that then was his actual plan or do we think william murray's just stirring the pot well so james duke of york um writes later that there was no truth in it right and that, that charles wasn't going to arrest him and try him um i mean I suppose we'll never know. Um, but I mean, Charles, I mean, Charles was certainly probably no, <laughs> he was probably wary of Hotham. Um, but whether he would have proceeded against him, I, I, I just think that would, it probably wouldn't serve his purpose to do that, you know, to just proceed against somebody who enjoyed Parliament Parliament's um, confidence so it's a bit of a bit of a you know one that I, I suppose we'll never know what his intentions were, but certainly he wanted to get to Hull because of those munitions. But I think what what's definitely telling is that Charles, there's nothing to suggest that Charles was upset by this, you know. So there's nothing um, other than James's writings to say that Charles was betrayed, um, and Charles never outwardly condemned Murray, um, and Murray never lost his place, never lost his influence. You know that was always there you know continued by the king's side so i think outwardly at least charles retained confidence in murray um but that was one of charles's fatal flaws um you know potentially he charles believed that the majesty of his position you know he believed in divine right he believed in his uh monarchy and him as king so much um that he often couldn't begin to appreciate that others might not, and that perhaps if somebody betrayed him, you know, it was Charles's duty as a, you know, as as a responsible king to show clemency. You know, that that was the one of the greatest um powers of monarchy in Charles's eyes is to show clemency and allow people to to make right their wrongs. But the problem is you you've straight away, you know, in Charles's position as a king, um, and a king in that time. He's got people who betray him, who snitch on him, you know, you know, <laughs> let things slip. They get welcomed back in the fold. Nothing's changed. They sometimes get peerages, you know, they get the rewards. So in the end, you've got people that just think, well, this is transient. And so if something happens with Charles and I disagree with it, I'll just say so. I'll go and I'll go and support his enemies. I know that I'll always get back into the fold. Um, because, you know, we'll we'll work around the king or, you know, he'll, he'll just show that clemency. And, and, and people really, there, there are contemporaries that complain about this, that he's just too often forgiven, you know, not ruthless enough. Um, and yeah, I, so I think that part of what killed him was clemency, you know. Yeah, I think you, you, you really hit hit a nail on the head there with, with Charles in that, you know, he's, He's not one of our. He he needed to be a warlike monarch, but he's just not, and that's why he fails. But in so many ways, we could probably look at the man now and say, actually, yeah, I'd, I'd much rather have him in charge than <laughs> than the guys who won because he's he's kind, he's forgiving, he likes art, he's probably a bit too trusting for his own good. Um, he's not the kind to sort of scream and shout and bluster, but. When we yeah. hold him up against his son, he can appear to be reserved, quiet, 
bold, aloof, um, mm. lofty and proud. These are these are words that kind of that that we really associate with Charles the First. Um, so spending time with him and, and knowing him as you do, was this your assessment of of the man? Is is that right? Is he is he cold? Is he just a little bit? No, um, I, 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 he's absolutely no cold fish at all. I mean, his monarchy was just that, you know, he's aloof, lofty and proud. Absolutely. Um, you know, these idealist tendencies that he had deluded him from reality, really. You know, so civil war wise, I think as a king, he's seen it like a giant mask. Um, you know, he's foolish in trusting people again and again. Um, he, he thinks that he can sweep in. Um, you know, use sort of the night of the garters, you know, that sort of honour to sort of bring people around, you know, convince people. And politically, you know, all of that just showed him as politically weak, but he wasn't a weak man. The man, I found, you know, examples of where he's kind, caring, um, you know, he's tenderly devoted to his family. Um, you know, in his youth, as I said, he's always known as sweet, kindly natured. But I think that's the thing, you know, that there's so few people at court that could probably see that close side of him. And if they didn't write it down, then that that can get lost. You know, so, um, you know, he, he had to fight from the start for, to, you know, for survival uh, and overcome these health impacts. So, yes, he could be prone to fits of rage, jealousy, vanity. But I think that's just like anyone in history and us, you know, he's no different to anybody. It's just what, you know, like with, with a lot of historical figures, if people haven't written down moments of tenderness or, you know, moments they've observed when somebody's being very kind, then that can get lost, especially for a king, you know, or someone who's meant to be in that position. You know, you, you view them on that pedestal. So, so I think things, things that are, notice were that, that you know he defends his ministers when they're criticized you know so he's actively saying don't criticize them they're acting on my orders whether you know whether they are fully acting on his orders or not he's he's putting his neck on the line um <laughs> to his own detriment yeah. you know um his the, neck the, the, turned out to be you know really his downfall didn't it yeah yeah that's it i mean he, you know he's, he's publicly supporting william lord um you know before the war but even so that's quite a tricky <laughs> point to put yourself on well that's a, um, that's a hard sell because you know his his devotion to his archbishop his devotion to his view of a a complete church across all of his kingdoms this this does feel to, to me to be really where where he he finds his his match his downfall is in trying to impose the anglican faith on the scottish church and thinking that they'll yeah. just kind of go along with it because he's the king appointed by god here's my archbishop um oh we're gonna make saint giles a cathedral here's your bishop you'll love him um let's have a bishop of edinburgh goes down like an absolute you know does not yeah. go down well um and he gets a stool thrown at him, as in a chair. Um, you know, the, the bishops get a chair thrown <laughs> at them, not poo. Um, should make that point. The Scottish weren't that rowdy, um, but he he trusted them to just be obedient and just do what he said. And and then when he hands himself into the covenant covenanting army later on, they just hand him to Parliament, of course, because they are not loyal to him. They're loyal to their church, and he mm. can't see that completely blind to it well it the, the, i think this is where the civil war can be really complicated because although they are joining parliament so the scottish covenant is a joining parliament for the covenanters they've got no issue with Ch well they have got an issue with them but as a king they want to keep him mm. you know they, they don't want to lose him you know he he's a, a fellow countryman you know yeah. so if they were to support the english parliament who want to get rid of the king or you know execute him even you know the covenanters are actually coming out in favor of charles they're saying no we, we don't agree with that because who will the english put in place and what impact will that have on scotland mm. um but yeah i mean as a man you know just getting back to the, the that side of things you know he's defending um buckingham when buckingham's assassinated you know he's 
greatest friend, probably his most devastating relationship uh, of his life. Um, he's he's paying off debt, supporting Buckingham's widow, um, taking Buckingham's children in and, you know, raising them with his own. Um, and, and then Buckingham's brother as well. So this is um, a guy who had a lot of problems, a lot of personal problems and health issues. And at the height of Charles's troubles with Scotland, he's in uh, the north um, dealing with the Covenanter armies. And at that point, he's writing to the carers of Viscount Purbeck and he's given them advice, you know, about sort of addictions and things like that and alcohol, keep him away from alcohol. You know, and, and I think that's the side of him that, that we don't see so often. You know, yes, there's the politics, you know, the fact that he's engaged with the covenant is there. But actually, you know, this this guy's writing off letters to, you know, his dead best friend's brother and the carers to make sure that he's looked after and treated well. You know, it it's very personal, very personal. I think that that does sum up, you know, just how kind that he could be. He's not an evil man. He's certainly not an evil man or an evil king. He's misunderstood, yes, and he's not politically adept. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and, and the other thing that that I, you know, I do think is striking is that you know he's making speeches to Parliament, and he makes no bones about the fact that um, perhaps he has a stammer. Um, and that, you know, he's not particularly good at speeches. He admits that in, you know, in front of Parliament. And, it, you know, you think of George VI and the King's speech. Charles is there in, you know, in a, in a very public arena, accepting and admitting this as they saw it, a d defect. Um, I think that takes guts. Really does. Um. And we're now going to look at a, um, another facet of Charles's character, because um, obviously his son, Charles II, one of the, the things most people probably know about him, is oh, he's yeah. very promiscuous, yep, Charlie knows, yep, many, <laughs> many mistresses, many illegitimate children. Where did Charles I, his father, sit on this? Was he a faithful husband? Did he have mistresses of his own, kind of, yeah, what was his character like in that regard? So, so if I say pre-1648, <laughs> absolutely a faithful husband. <laughs> absolutely. You know, and there's armies of people who sort of comment on this from royal physicians, ambassadors, you know, everybody's seeing how devoted he is to Henrietta. Um, but there is a disgraceful episode, I think, in 1648 when he's in captivity and you know, he's lost the civil wars and in Carisbrook Castle. And um, he's chasing Jane Warwood. Warwood. And, uh, you know, you, you, at that point in time when he's doing this, he's chasing after her and sort of writing letters and trying to make clandestine arrangements to meet her and things. Um, and it's at that point when you've got um, the Scottish engagers crossing the border, marching into England to in support of him. And I think that's, you know, that's um, quite a, a bit of thing to swallow, I think, when you've got men that are fighting and putting their lives on the line and He's the king's distracted. in captivity. Yeah, I mean, that that's the other thing here. You know, it could be Charles having some sort of breakdown. Um, you know, he can't cope with this powerless inactivity while such crucial things are happening. You know, he wanted to escape to join them and that just wasn't to be, you know, he's getting stuck in windows. You can't, can't get out of the castle. Um, so yeah, it must have been quite a, a difficult time for him. Um, but the other thing as well is, is that a front to fool his captors, you know, because are these meetings, you know, you know, is he penning these letters and different things to, to sort of fool them? You know, so that they look on the meeting with Jane and just think, oh, yeah, you know, he's he's going to um, go for a cordal. As the, as he, <laughs> he sometimes called it like a cuddle. It's Scottish <laughs> term. You know, but in actual fact, he's, he's exchanging messages and Jane's, you know, taking that, you know, out. And that's his communication with the outside yeah. world. So you can never tell. But I mean, certainly that, you know, he does he does make every effort to see her. He's pining after her. Um but before, so before 
before he was king, there is so little about his private life um, and romantic life. Um, there's hints at these tantalized hints at this unidentified woman um, and, and rumors about illegitimate daughter called Joanna or Joan Bridges, who later marries his chaplain. Um, but there's no hard evidence. Um, <laughs> but as a excellent use of words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but as a character, you know, he's self-controlled, he's abstemious, you know, he, he is quite tough with himself. So I don't think that he would have too many dalliances if he did. Yeah. Um, I'm not, not going to be an apologist for, for bad behaviour in a marriage, obviously. Um, yeah. But to be fair to Charles, his wife's been gone since, what, 1644 after did she go after Marston Moore? You have to put me put me right if I'm wrong. So the but, end of 44, yeah. So he hasn't seen his wife for four years at that point. Um, we can't deny him a little cuddle, can we? Well, that that's it, yeah, exactly. You know, and and the other thing, the other thing that we've got to remember here is he's not hearing from his family. No. So you know, the letters are not able to get through from Henrietta. I think perhaps at that point. There was some strain um, because she she wants him to surrender different terms. She wants him to give up bishops. Um, he warned uh, and she can't understand his principles. And he's trying to convince her, you know, that he's not just being stubborn. He's actually, you know, genuinely has this this principle at the core. Um, so, yeah, you know, you get, you know, he's writing out to the Prince of Wales, even, you know, instructing request and begging him to write more often um so yeah he's, he's he's completely cut off you know he thinks that this solitary confinement um in the back of his mind you know he's thinking that it could end with his murder in a corner um so yeah who knows you know that that's the thing isn't it he, I, I i agree i agree i don't think you can blame him it doesn't necessarily look good when you know as i say armies are battling it out for him and he's running around um, saying to Jane <laughs> that he wants to give her a good swive in, apparently, in, in the letter, you know. Oh, my. <laughs> but, yeah, just, just yeah. what what was the full meaning of that? Nice. But, yeah, get, getting back to this early unidentified lady, mm. um, it's this letter that involves Buckingham, um, which, so, so, so basically, Charles has been told off by his dad. Um, and Buckingham sends him some comforts uh, and, and Charles. So he re replies and he says, um, read this letter and then commit it to the safe custody of Mr. Vulcan. So in other words, burn it. Burn it. <laughs> um, and he said, the well-relished comforts you sent took the sting out of his father's telling off. But then he says, um, he's met the person that must not be named once already. And he'd meet her again on Saturday. So there's something there. There's something there. There's definitely something. Wow. <laughs> um, we're we're going to have to start wrapping up because otherwise I will talk to you all day, Mark. There's someone else I want to talk about who um, I know you talk about in your book. And I know this is going to be the thing that is going to make everyone go out and get a copy. So another mystery person, the identity of Charles's executioner. Now, it's always been something of a mystery. Mm. And without wishing to give anything away because we want to go and get copies of the book. Would it be fair to say that you have been playing detective? Do you have any new suspects? I've definitely got a new suspect. Yeah. <laughs> if it was Cluedo, we'd have another character on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'd stumbled across this letter, absolutely stumbled across it. And it was written um, 40 years after its execution. Um, but it, it does name somebody and makes an accusation. So, as you see, I'd been sleuthing it away through sort of news sheets and documents and things to try and piece this together and see, is it possible? Could it have happened? Um, so there's a number of candidates, but I don't think, I think apart from the, the city executioner, Richard Brandon, the other candidates that have been proposed there's always a question mark over it. And, you know, and, and certainly, you know, the, the, there will be question marks over anybody that's proposed because we we just 
certainly at the minute we won't know there's no evidence out of that you know out there to show exactly who it was but definitely i think that i've i've found somebody who can be put in the frame um there's when you look at sort of pieces of evidence from what people have said how they've described the executioners and the the, the problem is executioners it's so the two men on the scaffold the executioner who dealt the blow and then the assistant who um, held the head up uh, they are described as executioners so although one swung the axe they're both executioners um so yeah i definitely got another candidate there um but yeah we're going to buy your book and, and find out what you've got to say about this. It sounds absolutely fantastic. <laughs> what do you think, Beth, who done it? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I look forward to finding out. <laughs> Amazing. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Guys, the Charles I Private Life by Mark Turnbull is available now, and I'm sure we'll put it in our bookstore so you can get a copy. But please grab hold of a copy and um, check out Cavalier Cast as well. Right, Mark? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having us. That's been brilliant and thoroughly enjoyed it. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests latest books. You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.